Jensius, a counseling faculty at Kent State University and host for Circular Firing Squad. We've got five members, five questions, and five answers for each question. Questions are generated by each squad member and run from the thoughtful to the trivial. Let's find out who's uh, with us tonight with a roll call. Hey everyone, Jen Cook, Associate Professor, New England College. Hi everyone, Gina Martin. Um, assistant professor at the University of Wisconsin Whitewater. Hi, folks. Uh, Elliot Ingersoll, a um, professor of counseling at Cleveland State University and um, host of Apply Topically. Hi, everyone. Eric Perry. I am director of counseling programs at Southern New Hampshire University. Okay. First question is How do you or do you confirm students have done the prep work necessary for the class session you're about to teach? Well, I got to tell you, I both do and I don't. Um, <laughs> I kind of operate under the assumption that they did the reading and that they didn't do the reading. I know this sounds completely crazy, but I come from this perspective of like, I, I trust you that you're doing what you're supposed to do because I'm your teacher and not your parent. But I also recognize that not everyone in the room will have completed the reading or even cracked the book or open the file or whatever it is that you do to get to the reading these days. So I have a tendency when I have synchronous sessions, especially um, to make sure that I'm hitting the highlights, the things that I know that they absolutely need to know from the reading in order to be a functional, competent, ethical counselor. And then I make them do things with those specific things. And I usually throw in um, fun little things for the people who actually did the reading. Um, (laughs) And it could be, you know, that there's, you know, a joke from one of the case studies or, you know, something that I found particularly fascinating and want everyone's opinion on it. Um, I think they hate me when I do that because then it exposes who didn't do the reading, which isn't entirely the purpose, but more so it's not to embarrass, but more so to motivate to, yeah, she's going to ask about it. So it's worth your time to probably crack that book the next time. So I kind of go from the perspective of, I know they probably didn't. And I hope they really hope they did. So I don't. um, And I take a pretty firm stance on this because I think that that's on them. It's their responsibility to figure out if they want to read the textbook and Yes, similar to Jen, I will I will put out there the key highlights, the main points. If you're gonna do this, if you're gonna take that NCE at the end of this and become a counselor, you're gonna need to know a few things. So I will definitely go over those things, but I, I take a really hard stance on not checking the reading and not quizzing them on reading, on not regurgitating the information from the textbook because and I know it it irritates some students, and I get that, and I can tell, and I see that. And I hear them and I refuse to do it. I'm not going to spoon feed them the, the material because that's not my job. It's my job. You know, anyone can regurgitate textbook content, but not anyone can be a counselor. You have to be able to engage in it and you have to be able to say it and you have to be able to talk about it. And again, I, I know that um, this irritates some students and I have heard that and that's OK with me and that's on them. So. That's my stance. Good positions. I was thinking when Jen answered, though, it's like, well, that's a bit of a where's Waldo, you know, sort of approach, you know, to your students. That's fine. 
I, I always start my lecture first class. I talk about the Gaussian curve and, and just, you know, human beings, most traits do fall out on this curve, which means there's probably a few of you who yeah, you can skim the book, miss half the classes, and you'll probably get an A and goddess bless you. That's what I say. I'm like, good on you. Hey, that's great. That's innate talent. And then there's some of you who, like me, are going to have to read the book two, three times and get to every lecture. You're not going to pass. And that's me saying this. So place your bets. I'm open. You know, life's a carnival. Let's have some fun with it. But uh, yeah, I don't check too closely. But, you know, it's like I used to be a children's performer. I had I was in a duo and we were in a uh, it was an Ohio Arts Council. And they sent us to like 150 schools a year. And we did these shows for little kids like preschool through uh, grade two. Awesome audience. But I said I learned this very early on. There are smart kids in every classroom. And I would just, we would have a joke about rock the by baby. And we would kind of say, you know, a song has different parts. And I would look for the smart kids. And then my, my partner would be singing rock a baby. And I'd watch them. And they'd be like, start with this vacant kind of rock a baby. And it's on the treetop. And then you see them go, you know. And then when the wind blows, cradle will rock. And they're, they're like, oh, they're out of there, right? Bow breaks, cradle falls. And I'm like, I assume a lot of those students are in my classes, too, and they'll pick up on the subtle or not so subtle hints. And anyway, that was a very long and disjointed answer, uh, typical of what a full professor is expected of. So there, there we go. I'm going to try and follow that. Um, no, I, I don't typically check. Uh, I think it comes out in the wash, though, right? Because one of my biggest pet peeves, I think, about courses are just the Here's the textbook reading because it fits what the topic is for this week and half of it's junk. You know, I am really particular about what it is I ask the students to do. Um, I don't ask them to read full chapters if there's stuff in there they don't need uh, or I feel like isn't helpful. Um, so I'm really careful about how I select it, what I select for them to do, and there's reason for it. So it's going to come up as a part of what we do for that week, whether that's, you know, some type of formative assessment or um, part of the activities or what it is we're covering. You know, I, I feel like sometimes, especially in courses that are really important, we don't have as much time as I would like. Like we don't, I don't have time to give you everything and every piece. Like Gina said, I can't spoon feed this to you. There's just things that we're not going to be able to get to. Um, so I need you to, to do your part um, because we have to get to those experiential pieces that are going to make you effective in working with other people. Um, so that's really important. To me. I, I want to echo a little bit about what Eric said there in the sense that I making have to, I have to say that, you know, spoon feeding, if someone wants to pay me to spoon feed them, I'll spoon feed them for as long as it takes. If you got the money, hey, I'll do the spoon feeding. But most students don't have those resources. My apologies, Marty. Just had to check that in. Um, I, I'm going to echo a little bit of what Eric said in terms of the importance of the reading, because um, I don't like students to have to read junk. So I have switched textbooks when I realize, I'm, and I've gotten textbook recommendations from people that just turned out to be junk when I used them um, and often tell students, yeah, read this chapter, but skip these parts because these parts are, are not helpful or it's the author's conceptualization and it doesn't add to the, the piece. But I try to treat them like adults. And um, I do this uh, you know, before we head into the semester, a couple of weeks before, I generally send an email out to all of them and say, okay, here's the expectations for the course. It's a lot of work. 
Um, we're into our summer session. And so classes are, in this case, doubled in terms of the amount of work in the shorter period of time. And I let them know that they'll be be held responsible for the knowledge. Basically, I'm going to test them and let them know the implications of not knowing what's expected. This is what happens when people aren't successful with knowing this knowledge. Now, of course, a week before the midterm or a week before the final, I get lots of complaints about there's so much work to do in this course. Um, Well, yeah, fair warned two to three weeks before the class started that you needed to keep up with this. I know some faculty will do weekly quizzes because it forces them to move along with that process. I don't have the energy to grade all those quizzes for the purpose of making sure they're doing what's expected of them as adults. Yeah, not the parent. That's what I keep coming back to with this whole thing. Not the parent. All right. So um, I have a surprise question tonight for the squad, a question that no one knows what it's going to be until it comes across my lips. So my question tonight is, what is the best story you have about either receiving a surprise party or giving a surprise party? Very good question. So here's the story that this is the first thing that emerges into my mind. And my partner, her grandmother, just, well, she's 101, which is, you know, and she's doing well. I mean, well enough, you know, still has her wits, still lives in her house, you know, all of that. But when she was, I want to say 90, that, uh, no, 89. And she and her husband, then he has since passed on, but they were celebrating a 70th wedding anniversary. And the, I just, just, I, I had just finished up a few years working in uh, mental health services and nursing homes. Okay. And so uh, the family wants to do a huge surprise party, a big surprise party. And I'm there with a colleague of mine from the nursing homes who was a friend. Uh, long story short, she ended up in a lot of things that, you know, but. She was just listening and, you know, I'm thinking, oh, well, that could be interesting, you know, and they go through this very elaborate description of how they're going to surprise them and bring everyone in on the slide, you know, and then there's kind of a, a silence and a beat drops. And my friend says, well, who has worked in nursing homes? She's like, you know, the elderly hate surprises. You know that, don't you? <laughs> <laughs> totally threw everything out. <laughs> Threw everything, you know, into disarray. And it was, but she was right. Yeah, because they do. And it's just like, also, you're like, you got to think about cardiac health, you know, surprise at the wrong, you know, place could be big surprise. Anyway, so they decided to go with, uh, we're going to let them know that we're coming. And I was like, I think that's a good choice. But that, that, when my friend said that, I just, I just melted into laughter because I'm like, no, she's right. And I know it's, bursting all of these people's balloons, but they probably need to hear that. Good question. So I don't think I have any, no surprises. Nobody has ever been able to successfully surprise me. Um, my mom one year tried to surprise me with a birthday party. Um, I think it was my 16th birthday party. And then she left the invite sitting on the counter. And so naturally I found it. Um, so I, yeah, I've been never surprised. And I've only ever surprised someone else once. And that was a surprise visit to Kansas City, Missouri to visit Don when I was in college. And Don is my husband for those who don't know. 
Um, so those are the only times that I have ever been able to successfully surprise someone and pull it off. And then I've never, I've never been surprised. I was going to talk about probably the funniest experience I've had with this. I, I used to work in a, a government job. Um, we were co- government contractors working on uh, background investigations and security clearances. So the company decides they want to add a little bit of funds for employees and staff to do fun things because um, the work we conducted was generally very rote, um, was not exciting, you know, m- morale was not high. So they have this meeting and they're like, yeah, we're going to use these funds. And the first thing we're going to do is we're going to throw a surprise party for one of our staff um, whose birthday is coming up. Right. And we're like, great. So, but we have other agenda items to get through first. So this meeting's going on for about 45 minutes. Um, they're working through the agenda items and finally they get to birthday party, surprise birthday party agenda item. And they start talking about particulars. We're going to order pizza. We're going to have a cake, right? And it starts to sound a little bit like an elementary school birthday party. There should be a slice for everyone. I'm like, yeah, this is government work. And as they're talking, I'm looking across the table uh, as they're planning how the surprise is going to work, where the light switches are to shut the lights off. And when this particular staff member usually comes back from her break, um, whilst half of us are staring at her in the room. So the first attempt at this surprise party did not work out. I mean, she got her slice of pizza and slice of cake and they tried it a few times after that, but quickly realized they didn't know the people in the room well enough to plan the parties without ruining the surprise. (laughs) So that's one of my favorites. I got to tell you, um, Jen, this is a great question because never done either. Uh, Never had a surprise party thrown for me and never have been part of someone throwing a surprise party. Unlike Gina, at least she had some, uh, you know, she was not surprised because she found the invitations. I was not surprised because I've never had one thrown for me, nor have I been in any engaged place or relationship or friendship or work setting where we've thrown one of these things. Um, So, you know, previous podcast, we talked about uh, our screwed up versions of holidays and birthdays or my screwed up version of, of holidays and birthdays in my family in terms of keeping it very subtle. So, yeah, surprise. Surprises would be like what location weddings where you have to have everybody come to a far distant place. That's an inconvenience to everybody and blah, 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 blah. Nope. None and none. Wow. It makes me want to throw you a surprise party. Um, I Please don't. (laughs) Apparently you don't like to be surprised. In Belize. We're going to throw it in Belize. Oh, yes. All of a sudden you have a ticket on your door and we're going to Belize. Oh my gosh. The whole thing will be blown. It'll be on the agenda. I'm typically not a good surprisee. I'm I'm a I love to be the surpriser though, Um, and I have all kinds of instances where I've dropped in on people or planned parties, and I've got dozens of those stories. The one time I remember when I was 15, um, there was a plot for a surprise party for me for my birthday, and of course I figured it out. I played along just because it was kind of fun, but like I totally knew. But faking a surprise, like I'm not that good at it. But there was one instance in which I was surprised and it wasn't, you know, a party per se, but it was a surprising kind of celebratory moment that just popped to mind while y'all were telling your stories. Because I was like, I went and asked this question and couldn't remember any times that I've actually gotten to be surprised because I always figured it out ahead of time. But when I were in graduation season, so this one kind of makes sense. um, When I graduated with my doctorate, 
um, all of the master's graduates sat kind of on in the front of the floor, and then all of the doctoral advise or graduates sat behind them with their advisees. So, you know, the master's folks, um, you know, they were kind of in the front and we were behind. So we came up, we go up on the stage and we're all in the line and, you know, um, Gerard, you know, drops the hood over my head and all of the master's students from our program just jumped up and erupted into clapping. And I have never been so shocked by <laughs> anything in my life and just was, I mean, when I think about my graduation, it was so great to get hooded, but to see the students that I had gotten the chance to teach and supervise and work with for the two years that they were in the program kind of just jump out of their seats. Like that's, I don't think about the dinner afterward or the pictures or the flowers, like that's the sound in my mind. And it wasn't a complete and utter surprise. Cause you know, you expect people to clap because that's what you do in a graduation. But that moment was probably one of the most special surprises um, and was legitimately surprised. So now I know what it feels like to be legitimately surprised. So if anybody drops a surprise party on me again, and I find out about it, I know the appropriate reaction. I love that, Jen. Um, one big surprise that's coming to mind now for me is that I didn't have a PhD graduation. And that makes me sad to hear all about yours and to hear how people clapped and you got hooded. It's yeah, it, that was a big surprise that that didn't end up happening due to COVID. No, I'm sorry. And it was really special. Although I have to say, like, you know, Virginia Tech's a really big school. So it, it, even just with the graduate school, I, I think it was three or plus hours long and kind of true to form, like everybody on the floor is sitting with their advisors. So what are you doing? You're carrying on a full conversation the entire time. I mean, so I don't know if it's that way typically, because that's my only experience of a, I mean, a, the doctorate graduation when I got to hood my own doctoral student, like it was during COVID. So like, we're all in masks and they were like, you can't hood them on the stage put them in line. So we hooded our folks while we were in line before we even walked across the stage and took a picture. We took our masks off, took a picture and that was it. Wow. Yeah. So maybe three hours that I got back in my life, but <laughs> it was so cool. And I, and I hope you get some kind of celebration like that in the future. Cause it was kind of special to be honest. So awesome. Awesome. Well, another PhD is not in my future. That's for sure. Um, okay. So this next question, what is your research line and how did you get interested in that topic? This is a really interesting question for me, developmentally speaking, because I'm really losing interest in all things professional. I'm starting to really, my fiction writing is just exploding. My music stuff is coming back and I'm kind of just, I think I might be, you know, kind of rapping. I don't know. But because it's gone, it's gone so far afield. I started with counseling and spirituality, and that was, yeah, I was coming out of the Anglican priesthood thing, and very important. And then uh, they needed someone to teach psychopharm, and I had had a bunch of psych classes as part of my PhD, um, and I had, you know, I could do it. And then I got really, I just get into things, you know, and I'm like, oh, this is interesting. So I got into psychopharm, and now. I'm looking at Eastern cosmological models and how they actually fit with everything that's happening on the planet, including what we discover about the brain and about neurology and about psychopharm. So I'm like seeing those things come back together. But I am also acutely aware that my interest in all of that is kind of is starting to wane. And uh, I think that's probably developmentally normal, but it's like, wow, we haven't we haven't learned shite about the brain, about neuroscience, about drugs, and 
in the 20, 30 years I have left, I don't know that we're going to learn that much more. So, but hey, look at these women in my fictional study. Look at them taking back the world and making it the way they want it to be. That's just got more import for me now. It was a good question, though, because it really started me thinking about that. You know, I have this sabbatical coming up in fall and I will write some stuff. I've, I've got papers on ketamine and on ibogaine therapy, and that's very interesting to me. But quite frankly, not from an academic perspective, as someone who's done these drugs, I'm like, yes, they work. They're great. You know, and you can't say that. So you have to say, well, <clears throat> this is Professor Ingersoll. He has studied these things in depth. And it's just like, yeah, that's important to that. But I think that first person account, I'm like, yeah, that's important as well. So a long and diverging answer to a succinct question. I'll stop. Yeah, I mean, my my interests are they haven't changed much. They've been pretty static, I think. And part of the draw for me in counselor education was working in a training environment. So I always think about pedagogy and and how we teach and how we learn and, and those types of things and naturally have a inclination toward technology and the use of technology in counselor education. Started to think a little bit more about um, VR and VR instruction and starting to look at how those VR environments can really um, change how we think about synchronous courses, particularly online. Um, what types of environments can we create um, that you know, can simulate at least to some degree what we do in the classroom, right? Or even expand what we do in the classroom, enable creativity. And, you know, I, I think a lot of programs got pushed into this. Now we have to teach online. Let's throw some stuff in an LMS. Let's meet on Zoom. You know, let's do our best to kind of whip something together um, because we have to. And now thinking about, okay, what about that experience works and didn't? What, what technologies do we really have access to that are affordable that we can get our hands on? Um, that can help us teach. Um, so I'm starting out uh, in the fall looking at VR environments, um, how we might access them and uh, you know, looking at a couple of the LMSs that are actually already starting some of this work, um, really your big names, right? Your Brightspace and uh, Blackboards. Um, we're going to start to to try and integrate some of this and seeing if I can get in on the counselor education uh, aspect of that. So I think that part's really exciting. So what is a research line? Um, I mean, that's my my question. Uh, what What's your research line and how did you get interested in that? I think one of the complaints, I hate to say the word complaint I got when I went up for promotion and tenure was that my writing was in a variety of different areas. And I took every opportunity to write um, in a bunch of areas. And so, you know, they tried to define me as having three different research lines. I guess the thing that I'm most drawn to, though, is the kind of work that Eric was talking about um, in doing the application of computer technology to teaching. And I, I got in it a long time ago um, and looking at some basic things like web pages, multimedia, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and after doing a few demos of how you could use it at conferences, I sort of became that guy. But my fascination with it started when I was working back in radio and our billing person was sick and was going to be out for a week, or maybe it was 28 days, I can't remember. But, you know, I think the sickness was too much elbow bending. And I had to take over the billing because I had the master's degree, and I supposedly knew how to use computers. And so I had to do a kind of crash course on DOS computers and, and 
database systems, trying to get the billing out for the radio station. And then I kind of got fascinated with the logic of them. And um, when I was working on my PhD, I started getting more and more involved in what they could do. They were my my hobby. So I guess if you want to know where that uh, research line originated, it was probably because our biller was uh, out for a period of time and I, at the radio station, and I got responsible for making the bills get paid. My research line over the past 10 years has been related to cultural development, uh, cultural sensitivity, cultural identity, you know, all of those types of things, specifically social class and socioeconomic status. So I think a lot of folks, when they think social class, they think me. Um, and I kind of love that. Um, and for me, it really was me of realizing that, you know, I passed for a long time as middle class when I was not a member of the middle class and how that felt um, to realize that I had spent a lot of time working to pass and and to take on that identity, but not fully taking on that identity. And then once I was socioeconomically dropped into um, you know, middle income, middle, um, you know, upper middle, even occupation and, um, and education, I started to think, well, I need to keep using my power to understand better, like how I bring my identities together, because I don't think I'm alone in this, because the more that we attract folks into this profession who are of different types of backgrounds, um, socioeconomically speaking, social class-wise, first-generation students, which I am, first-generation college, um, the more that we have to help folks to understand their own identities so they can work with clients. So this is becoming even more of a priority for me, I think, now, because I feel like I can better use my privilege around that to help others to understand themselves better, but wanting to take that and understand it better with clients, too. Um, That validation that it's okay to be quote unquote, low social class or to be low middle class or to be upper class, that just because you're not a member of the dominant culture when it comes to social class, there's a place for you and you can be bicultural in the midst of that. So I'm starting to see myself drawn into that in terms of clinical implications, understanding clients' perspectives of that with their counselors better. Um, I'm not fully sure how to even measure that or what that's going to look like, but that's where my heart is being drawn right now. Um, while also recognizing that I'm in the middle of a self-study <laughs> and somehow I found myself into writing a multicultural textbook with Maddie Clark. So we're writing a textbook. And so I'm trying to like balance these realities here of what is my research agenda look like now that I'm at a teaching institution and having such a passion for research and being able to work it in. But also realizing that it looks different when you're writing a self-study and when you're writing a textbook. So I have a feeling that over the next year, my research agenda is going to look like maybe one study. Um, I'm closing up a bunch of studies right now, and I think it's a good time for that. And I've promised I'm only starting one this year um, just because I want to get the textbook um, out the door and want to get the self-study out the door because those are the priorities right now. But my heart still deeply lies in this research and wanting to do more of it. It's just a matter of like moving things around once these other two big pieces are kind of kicked out the door. I love hearing these responses. And the reason that I asked this question is because I thought I might get some of these where you get to hear about people's experiences and their passion and what's really led them to some of these things. 
And I'm, I'm glad to hear that from all of you. And that's how it's been for me too. Um, so I do a lot of research around neuroscience and bringing that into the counseling world. So for me, um, this started with my clinical experience and I really have a passion and my heart lies with studying clinical populations and, um, looking at neurology. And I know that's like kind of taboo. And I know that's like really hard to do. And like, everybody tells me you probably don't want to do that. And it's probably not a good idea because you're not going to publish very much because it takes a long time and it's really expensive. Um, but I've been really lucky to have a few research mentors who have not sang that same tune and who have said that I can do it and who have helped me get access to clinical populations and have helped me learn to read QEEGs and brain scans and things like that, that were totally out of my league and something that was so far out of my scope. Um, but my whole passion and the thing that I really want to devote my career to is bridging that gap between how do I read a brain scan and what does this mean for mental health? Because um, there's a ton of research on brain scans themselves. There's a ton of research on neurology, and that is a different field. But it's all about how, how do we translate that to mental health and what does that actually mean in terms of symptomology, in terms of treatment, in terms of developing protocols, whatever, all that stuff. So, yeah. That's a little bit about me. Well, having had you as a guest lecturer in, in my psychopathology class, I can tell you that that work has really stood you in good stead. I mean, the students are very impressed with it and it's important work. So glad to hear that you're following up on that. My question is, uh, I guess it's a reversion to the ridiculous or the silly, but I'm going to rephrase it because it's like, as I can hear, I can hear, I had a counseling lab student. And I've had a few like this, but this is one of those people who met with me every week, every week. And they wanted to know exactly what we were doing. And they would. But I'm like, no, that's exactly what I would do if I had questions, you know. And I'm like, yeah, we broke it down. Um, so I can hear one of those students saying, you ask a closed ended question. You should have used an open ended question for this. So I'm going to I'm going to change it just slightly. Tell us about any pet peeves that you have and enjoy uh, nurturing. Oh, I like that. Enjoy nurturing part. Um, I don't know. I have, I have a couple, right? Um, meanness for meanness sake is one that gets me, right? It kind of brings out my inner passive aggressive and aggressive aggressive if I have it, you know, and you see examples of that. And, you know, in particular, the, the meanness that comes at the expense of somebody else trying to be funny. And, you know, that, that irks me immediately. Right. Um, it's just something that gets under my skin. The other one I'm not going to describe, I'm not going to label necessarily, but I'll, I'll tell you what happened. So I'm at a, a party, um, seems to be a theme for them. And I may have told this story to some of the, the members here before. Um, and, you know, it's just casual conversation. We're talking about our, our cars. Um, one of the members of the party had asked, uh, had started complaining actually about the fact that he couldn't buy a new Jaguar. Jaguar is how he pronounced it, which I, I don't, I don't think is the right pronunciation. I don't think there's quite as many syllables or emphasis on any of them. Um, to which I was immediately annoyed. And he starts talking about the fact that because he had twins and you know, they're so very expensive. He couldn't buy one and it's nearly three years old. Uh, I, I, at the time was driving my 159,000 mile Ford Escape. And I said, well, you know, I, I quite enjoy my Fjord Escape to which he sauntered away, um, kind of glaring back at me. And, you know, I just, I couldn't handle it. Right. I couldn't take it. It was one of those things that just came out. Half the people here can't afford a Jaguar, right. Let alone 
half the crap you're talking about. You don't know your audience, right? There's families here. It was a birthday party for kids that go to a private school who have, you know, there's this huge range in income, right? Um, you know, so for me, it was just that it just tipped the scales for me. So I think that like braggy kind of thing goes along with that meanness for meanness sake. I got to tell you, um, I had plenty of peeves, but not enough pets. Um, that's the problem in my life. But when I saw this question come up, I thought I have uh, one thing that has kind of followed me through my life, and that's leaving lights on in rooms that you're leaving. And I think that was drilled into my head from my mother as a child that, you know, she was a child of the depression. So you don't leave electricity burning in rooms where you don't, you're not going to be in. And so I have this reflexive thing as I'm leaving a room to put my hand out and hit the light switch. It just is, I don't cross through a threshold without hitting a light switch. My wife has a different feeling about lights. One Sometimes I'll hear, well, I'm going to go back there sometime and is much more nonchalant with with her attitude around having illuminated rooms that you're not in. So, yeah, uh, that's my pet peeve. One of the many peeves with not enough. Yeah, I don't think I nurture any of mine. Um, Yeah, I don't even know what to say about that. But one thing that makes me crazy is kind of the general public interaction with maneuvering in a store, you know, of like you're going with your buggy down the aisle and you're trying to get your stuff. And of course, people, they they need to get around you or they might bump into you. To me, the appropriate thing to say is either pardon me or excuse me. What does not work for me, number one, Midwesterners, I'm sorry. Asking to go around someone by saying, I'm sorry, or if you accidentally bump someone in a store, it's just pardon me or excuse me. There's no, I'm sorry. This is not like some kind of great debt. Like you didn't like gouge my car or kill my cat. Like this is just a simple thing that happens because we're all kind of coexisting together. So the I'm sorry puts me over the top every single time. Just say, excuse me. Or then there's the people who just barrel by elbows out and there's nothing and they just keep on going. And I'm like, you know what? We're trying to live in a civilized society. I recognize that we're not doing a very good job at it, but could we just start with a little pardon me? Excuse me. Can I slip by? I really don't care, but no, I'm sorry. And no barreling into me, like give me some space. And just say, pardon me, I'm more than happy to move out of your way. I don't understand this. And I don't, I also don't understand why this bothers me so much, but I think it has to do with the way in which I was raised, sort of like Marty's talking about the light switches. Um, My parents had a lot around this kind of stuff of like politeness was like, you might not have a lot, but you can be polite. You can be gracious. You can be polite. You can say, thank you. You can say, yes, ma'am. And no, ma'am. And you can say, pardon me, if you bump into somebody or want to go around them. (laughs) So this is probably family upbringing and the way that the way that I was raised. But it continues in me because I think that it's just nice and there's nothing wrong with simply being nice. So I have a laundry list, um, but I'm only going to stick to a couple for tonight for the time's sake. So one thing that really, really irks me um, (laughs) is when I get in my car and someone has left the air conditioning blasting. Now, this might not seem like a big deal, 
especially if it was like 90 degrees here today or whatever. So not a big deal, right? I don't mind air conditioning in the car. However, it's when it's left on and I turn the car on and it's blurring in my face and it's blowing my hair and my eyelashes are, you know, in my eyebrows. That's when I have a problem with the air conditioning in the car. So that's one of my biggest pet peeves currently as of today. Um, And another one, it's actually really similar, Jen, to yours. However, it's when driving. And this is something that I have only noticed since I moved to the great state of Wisconsin. Um, People stop at four-way intersections when they don't have a stop sign. Okay, So like everybody's going and I'm not anticipating this person to stop driving their vehicle and let me go because I don't have the right of way, but they stop and they're like, go ahead, go ahead. And it's like the standoff and it makes me really uncomfortable. So I think it's, I think it's a way of being polite. I think it's a way of being nice, but I don't think it's nice to the drivers behind them who are like, why the, you know, what is this person stopping? It's because they don't read signage properly because they don't stop at red lights either in Milwaukee. That's just like, it's a suggestion. It's not a mandate. They just would keep barreling through. Do you know how many times I've almost gotten killed either on foot or in my car just because red lights are a suggestion in Milwaukee? Are you kidding? We've formally apologized to all of our Milwaukee and Wisconsin listeners. Of which we know there are many. Thank you, Eric, for that. Yeah. Tapped into some group energy on this one. Boy, that's good. Hey, (laughs) there are so, uh, there are so many, there are so many, so, so many. I'm just going to start with a small one. I'm like advertising, advertising drives me crazy. And I'm just like, when I talk to my students, I, I got friends in physics. Okay. They're, they're talking about imaginary numbers and Euclidean curves and black holes. And we're trying to make people less crazy. And I'm like, they're going to get way ahead of us on those black holes before we figure out how to make people less crazy. Okay, Ziploc bags. I'm just going to start with Ziploc bags. I'm like, I'm messing with these. And the older I get, okay, it's not easy. It makes it sound like Ziploc, Ziploc. I'm like, good advertising. But if you've ever used one, well, there's these grooves and ridges and you've got to line them up. And for, I don't have feeling in most of this hand. Okay, so I can't, okay, do that. And then I've, I line them up and then I squeeze them together. That's the lock. That's the lock. And then I pull it. That's the zip. They're lock zips. They're not zip locks. And I'm like, for the love of Mike, oh, people believe this stuff. They don't question it. And it just drives me bonkers. And that's all I have to say about that. To shift gears a little bit, how do you go about updating your curriculum and courses and what prompts that change? Um, I, for me, it's uh, generally changing the material is uh, inspiration by having done something differently the last time I taught the class. And it's like, OK, now I got to add this in or I have to do this differently in the uh, this this time that I teach the class. So um, sometimes there are actual reasons for, I mean, there's good reasons for changing it. New, new research has come out or new material has come out or the DSM-5 TR has come out. Um, so there are reasons to make those changes, but typically it's because I've been inspired by something that seemed to work better the last time I taught it that came out of the moment in the class. That means I change the uh, I changed the process that I have had a strange I'll be brief on this um, this last semester I taught psychopathology and I taught it in a classroom instead of completely online 
because I spent years putting material together for online lectures, online treatment plan development, and things like that. And he said, guess what? You're teaching it face-to-face this semester. Well, all of my content's online. What am I going to do in the classroom? So each week, I kind of looked at the topics where I had all the material already for them to view online when they came to class. And I thought, now, what am I going to talk about this time? It forced me to get into some really interesting areas. Like for some reason, one time I thought, let's talk about serial killers. You know, I don't have a lecture on serial killers and put together a lecture on serial killers and did that live. And students were like really engaged and wanting to discuss aspects of that. So um, it's those sort of structural shifts that uh, force me to try and do something different or add something to the classroom. Yeah, I agree with what Marty's saying. And also, and I would also say that There's these moments where I just see the material completely fall flat and I make a little note to myself on my agenda. When I used to teach physically in person, I would, I would bring, you know, a printout of my notes because ADHD, right? Like there's no way that I'm getting through all of the material or even close to the material without my little cheat sheet with me. So I would make a little note of like, well, that activity was a fail um, and it wasn't so great the last time I tried it and I thought it was an anomaly. So I'm going to switch that up the next time because what I've noticed is that over time, like some of my ways of relating kind of don't make it with the students because there's a shift in what they know or what they understand or what their framework is for things. And so something that might have been really great that I used, you know, eight years ago when I was teaching may not work that great now. Um, So I I take that feedback seriously. And I think part of it is self-awareness of paying attention to what's happening in the room and what the dynamic is. The same with discussion board prompts. Like there's some that I have gone back and I've changed them, even though they're good prompts, but I've just tweaked them slightly to remind them in bold that you're supposed to focus on the techniques from this week, not the techniques from the entire term. But the techniques from your reading from this week, Um, because I noticed a pattern this past week when I had a prompt where people were going in the Wayback Machine. I'm like, that's from five weeks ago. What are you doing? It says this week. So, you know, I try to learn from these kinds of things where students slip up because I don't want them slipping up just to lose points because that's dumb. More so, it's like I want them to have the learning opportunities. So being able to make changes on my side that are going to increase their learning you know, I think a lot of that has to come from my self-awareness and paying attention to what's going on in the classroom and what's happening in the learning environment so that I can better meet their needs because they're always changing. Yes. Yeah, so similar to what a, a number of people have said, um, I've had the opportunity to teach both online and in person. And I think that that combination and always having to change content from online to in-person or in-person to online has actually helped keep me on my toes with updating curriculum, updating courses, updating activities, updating discussion posts like Jen, you were talking about. Um, So I think that that's actually been really helpful. And one of the other main reasons that I update and change and adapt to whatever context is needed in that specific instance. Another thing that I I do a lot, and this may be (laughs) disorganized and disheveled and just part of my personality but I oftentimes will not go in with a plan and I will just respond to what students are needing. So like 
sure I'll have a topic planned and I'll have the textbook information that everybody should may have read by the time of class. Um, however, I, I don't like to go in with like a very specific outline of what I'm going to do. I found that in my early days of teaching, when I had that, things were not going great. It was not really good discussion. It wasn't responding to what students wanted. It was more of me regurgitating, spoon feeding the content and not a whole lot of students thinking for themselves. One thing that I've learned is that when I say something in the classroom, it tends to stick a little bit more. However, when students can voice their opinions and get those out there before I've said the definitive, this is how it goes, then that helps people think through things a little bit more. So I like to respond to that and I like to lean into that. And I know that that can be uncomfortable for some students, especially those in the beginning of their master's programs, usually. And that's something that I like to encourage and invite students to, to get comfortable sitting in that discomfort. Um, so. Yeah. Yeah. I, I wish I wish my answer had the academic integrity of Jen's or Gina's. Mine is 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 mostly insecurity and ADHD. I'm always like, ah, uh, every semester I'm like, you know, these people are going to get very tired of you very quick. You, you've got to up your game. And there's always that. But then I'll be like reading and I'll be like, oh, look at that study in nature. Oh, look at that. Study. And I, so I make a list. I, I learned how to like have a here's my file for updating my lectures for next semester. And I'll find all these studies and then I'll go back to them. But the ADHD actually serves me very well in that. It's just that hunter gatherer kind of thing. You're like, oh, snag that. Oh, snag that. And then you go back and you read them a little more in depth or you trace it to the to the to the to the root study. And very gratifying on a personal level. And I hope my students think so, too. But I also have doctoral interns and I'm like, oh, my gosh, I'm co-teaching this with someone. I've got to make sure this course is up to snuff, you know. There come people are coming out of a doc program, though, far more than I will probably know for a long time. You know, they're like on top of everything. I'm on top of like two, three things. That's my siloed expertise. But like people who are just finishing, they're on top of everything. And I'm like, all right, let's make this, you know, resourceful for them as well. So, yeah, there you go. Insecurity and ADHD, two tastes that go great together if you don't like peanut butter and jelly. Yeah, I know. I brought the question out because I was having a conversation with a couple of colleagues about one of my first experiences teaching and I'm getting kind of the lay of the land. And it's interesting, Elliot, that you talk about doctoral interns because um, I was one and, and I have the faculty who normally teaches the course sitting with me. And um, she's telling me, she's like, every week you have to curve the, the quizzes. And I'm like, we, we curve quizzes? Yeah, 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 yeah. That's what we do here. Okay, all right. Um, It's odd, but okay. Um, And she's like, sometimes there's questions that maybe one or two students out of twenty five will answer correctly, um, and you're going to throw those out. Uh, But we're going to give them the same. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We're going to keep those in the quiz. And why? You know, and and why? Like, and and you know, I come from a training background, and a lot of the assessment that we did was preparedness assessment, right? Making sure that. Um, our staff are ready to do the job. And I'm like, what, what purpose do these questions serve to, to keep them in there? And, and it's like the worst, most kind of cringeworthy response that, cause that's how we do it. That's how we've always done it. And, and I it's just mental note to myself in that moment, I am not going to work here ever. 
Cause I, I can't, that I can't handle that. Right. Cause usually it's some mix of what everybody has said to this point, right. There's, it's not working. The students aren't learning it. Um, they're not grasping it. It's not useful. It's not effective. It has no utility or it bores them to death. Right. I notice them nodding off in the middle of whatever it is we're doing. And a lot of times when you teach in the evenings, these are students that work all day and then they have to come and then they have to listen to you, right? So you have to find ways to engage and I think make the process interesting and, and helpful and insightful. And, you know, I like what Gina said too, just sometimes you need to go in and respond to what it is they need. Um, so I don't go in with two and a half hours of content for a two and a half hour course, you know, that I come in with enough content that I can fill time between assessing what it is that my students need and what I can bring to the process that's going to be helpful in making them effective. So I, you know, that kind of horror story is what, what brought about this that's all of our questions for tonight, but we have a final shot question. Would you rather attend a party or host a party? Well, I'm back in true form tonight. I'm both because I have gifts for both. Like I have gifts for running the party and I have gifts for attending the party. And particularly, I would love to attend the party when I don't really want to attend the party. So I can just be there for like maybe 20 minutes and then leave uh, if my introvert is in need. But um, I love to host. For me, it depends on the kind of party. This is like a rager, then I'd rather attend and not have to clean up. But if it's like a dinner party, if it's like a normal party, then I'm all for hosting. I'm sorry, you're still going to ragers, Gina? Um, absolutely not. have never actually attended one in my life. So <laughs> just putting that out there. <laughs> Oh, I absolutely love giving parties. I love decorating. I love cooking. I love inviting people and just going out and talking to everybody. And that's my job as the host. So I just float and every queer bone in my body loves hosting a party. I'm going to attend um, out of pure laziness, right? Uh, my spouse loves to host a party. And, you know, Elliot, it's funny because I just put her out front, right? She, you know, whenever we have a party, she just does the, the hosting and she finds a place for me to to be and that's what i do so I'm, I'm definitely i'm attending i find attending so painful um when i was in college and working on a crisis line and carrying a pager um i was out of kindness felt i needed to go to attend some of these parties that people invited me but i'd always call into the crisis line and say I want you to beep me at around 8.30 because when the beeper goes off, I can look at it and go, I I'm sorry, I got to go. I've done my 30 minutes at the party and I'm ready to go. It For me, it's got to be hosting a party. And there are conditions in that hosting too. It's sort of like, do I get to stand by the grill and cook all night and not have to have social interaction with people? Yeah, I'm all for it. Can I be in the kitchen and be, you know, have a sous chef in there to help me create a series of meals that come out, I'm all for it. Um, and do I have to sit around the room and talk to people? Mm, no. Um, let them talk, let them enjoy the food, things like that. So definitely hosting a party. Thanks for the squad. Uh, Gina, Jen, Elliot, and Eric. Stephanie is uh, at the beach at a beach weekend with her husband and daughter sending me video of Nora trying to eat calamari. 
Look for some of these characters on their podcasts on the podtalk.net. You can find out more about them at circularfiringsquad.net. Our theme music is from Menage Quad, Real Swing Chef. That's it for this episode of Circular Firing Squad. Ready, fire, aim.